Mason. Hello. <laughs> Hi, buddy. Oh, well, well, well. Another. Holy shit. <laughs> We're back, folks. How are you, bud? Folks. What's up? What if Podverse? Podiverse? I'm doing good. Po- the Potterverse. The Potterverse. This is our new Harry Potter podcast. Dude. Where we talk about uh, what if I was Harry Potter and no one else was. <laughs> As opposed to what if everyone was Harry Potter, which would be... Well, a, isn't that kind of the a... story of Harry Potter? It's like, oh, there's a kid, he's a wizard, but so are like all the other kids. So And like, he's whatever. a special wizard, but also like Neville could have been, but that's boring. Uh-oh. You lost me. I don't know anything about Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Oh, well. Oh, man. How are you? Did you know that there there's a Harry Potter musical on Broadway right now? No. Oh, not right now. Not right now, right now. <laughs> but prior to the, in the before four times, it was, uh, it's like an extended universe Harry Potter musical. Like the, uh, what is that shit called? The, the Fabulous Beasts or whatever they're called? Uh, yeah, it's like akin to something like that. It's like a, a story that you didn't hear in the original books. Huh. Yeah, which, you know, might be relevant to our topic of conversation. Hell yeah. (laughs) How have you been? It's been forever since you've been on the show. Oh, I've been swell. I've been flying planes, spreading them chemtrails around for everybody. Thank you. Um, Thank you for your service. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, And uh, getting close to uh, finishing up this rating and uh, being a, a pilot full time. So studying hard, looking forward to the summer. Getting a little bit of cabin fever. Yeah. But um, yeah, I miss my friends. I miss you. I miss everybody back in, in Minneapolis and uh, can't wait to get back up there. Um, but yeah, life is good, man. How have you been? I'm okay. All the same things. Um, yeah. Right now I'm, I'm a little chilly because <laughs> I have no heat or hot water at my house right now, which is uh, really exciting. I've had like well. the... Uh, just the gauntlet of my house is 110 years old problems lately mm, mm-hmm. which currently Weird. well at it, least it's like not the middle of winter anymore yeah right it's gonna be like 70 tomorrow but today it's a little chilly but uh yeah. it's a long boring story but the the end of it is <laughs> i have no heat or hot water in my house until tuesday so okay it's gonna be cold well, and stinky yeah, for a few days well maybe you, you can use it <laughs> make some cold and sticky music Oh, Jesus. <laughs> use that stink. Yeah, use that stick. Uh, all right, before we have one actual segment that we have to get to on every show, which okay. is what has brought you joy recently? Joy recently. Or, you know, um, recently can mean like the last six months or whatever since you've been on the podcast. Yeah, I have rediscovered this is gonna sound really basic but i have like rediscovered a joy for reading oh nice um i think like i, I was really into reading for uh when i was younger yeah but it was like you know mostly fiction and then i kind of like just i felt like i just wasn't good at it for a while like i just couldn't focus i had like so many other things i wanted to, to do and i could never like focus on what i was reading for long enough to really make it like a meaningful experience so i just kind of told myself for a while like i just don't read i'm like it's not a dude that reads anymore you know, like I'll occasionally find like a book that I think is interesting or like a sci-fi book that's really fun to read. But recently I've started getting more into reading nonfiction and specifically like history. And I have just been cruising through books. Nice. Um, and that's been that's been making me really happy. 
especially when it's nice enough to like go outside and, and read and what do you um, what are you working on right now so right now i'm work there's a i would highly recommend actually there's a course on uh civil war and reconstruction that yale's website has up for free um and there's the, the teacher david Br- bright david blight maybe uh, amazing historian, really, really just well-versed in this topic and an awesome uh, recommended reading list that accompanies it. Um, it's just a really deep dive into partially the Civil War with some of the nerdy like battle, battles and stuff like that, but mostly the ins and outs of Reconstructed, which is sort of like the, the great forgotten chapter of American history. And it's, um, yeah, so many lessons to be learned from that. So many like, you know, the, the long shadow of history casting over the present moment and kind of shaking your head about what could have been. Um, but lots of really fascinating um, books about reconstruction recently. So that sounds like something that should be making me really depressed, but it, I think just like learning, it doesn't I guess sound it does kind of fun, but I could see where you but like get learning joy. Is, yeah. is, is joyful. Yeah. That. And also my wife and I playing uh, board games and doing puzzles. Nice. Yeah. We did a star Trek puzzle. Wow. Nights ago. Uh, yeah. Original series, next generation. Original series. Okay. Yeah. I I watched I've started watching some of the uh, the original movies because I had never seen so them. bad. You said they're so bad. They're so bad. Yes, I mean if you're looking <laughs> for like a good movie, yeah, they're not it. Well, there's I mean there's gems in there for sure. They're entertaining. But yeah, like the first one is just like an, an ort cloud, and then there's like a there's like a kind of robot person that inhabits a crew member. Oh, I forget. Wait, maybe I don't. Okay, yeah, because I, I'm not watching them in order. I think I've been watching them in in the order of how much Katie likes them. Nice, because <laughs> she's seen them all before, and I, you know, I was heavy into Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and stuff, but it never really oh, yeah. messed with the original series. Yeah, well, the original series is fun. I, the first season is kind of like. Every literally every episode is like a space disease has made all the men angry and all the women horny. <laughs> and so we have to find some way to purge it from the ship. <laughs> and like Good. does the Good. men just get progressively more like sweaty and like <laughs> pound the fake walls, you know? And the women just like progressively like let their hair down and like develop crushes on all the male crew members. Classic. That's like almost every episode of the first Classic season is just like space horny angry disease. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. I mean, that's factually accurate. That is what happens when you go to space. Yeah, everyone knows that. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have a topic today that I thought you might be, well, more qualified than we are usually qualified to talk about things about. <laughs> 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 which is industrial musicals. Yes, indeed. Uh, which is a concept I was not familiar with until... Well, a few days ago when I pitched this episode to you. But the idea is it's a musical, like a full-fledged Broadway-style musical that was produced for only to be viewed internally by corporations. So General Motors would commission a musical about General Motors to perform for employees of general motors about how great general motors is (laughs) (laughs) but somehow this concept caught on in like the 50s 60s 70s in like a really remarkable way like there were 
hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of these musicals made between like the mid fifties and 1980. And they companies were spending even at the time in the sixties, millions of dollars making these musicals that were never intended to be seen by the public and never were for the most part. And it should be noted as like a, a sector of the musical economy, like orders of magnitude, more money are spent, were spent on these industrial musicals than were ever spent on Broadway shows. Yeah. I think that was the, the wildest part of it to me is like, uh, there was Chevy produced a musical in 1956 with a budget of $3 million in 1956 <laughs> for one musical. For, for probably one night also. Because so, ma- many of these were would be performed at like the shareholder meeting or some kind of employee conference. And then that was it, you yeah. know, or some of them would tour, but a lot of them would be like, we're, we're performing at this annual conference and then that's it. Right. Versus a Broadway show, which, you know, you could be running for years and years and years. Yeah. So $3 million in 1956 is the equivalent of $29 million today <laughs> for either one show or like four or five performances of that show. Because some of them, like you said, some of them, like with the bigger companies, they would do it at like a central shareholders or like sales meeting but then would also do smaller the regional tours. Like, yeah, like, or, you know, wherever they had uh, larger offices or, you know, could get a couple hundred of their employees together. Mm-hmm. But even that, I mean, if you're doing five shows, we're talking the equivalent of like five or six million a show today. Right. Yeah. Which is just, yeah, bonkers. a lot of huge production value. We're talking like, Trapdoors, hydraulics, fly systems, sixty-piece orchestras for some of them, huge orchestras, <laughs> paying out the composers, choreographers, huge casts. You know the space, the lighting. So that that Chevy one in '56 was three million dollars. That same year, My Fair Lady opened on Broadway and had a budget of four hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs> so we're talking Chevy spending six million or six times more. Than My Fair Lady opening on Broadway in the same Hell year. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That rules. <laughs> That's so awesome. What a bunch of sickos. Right? So That's so good. W- like, the goal of them is still not entirely clear to me. Like, so you have, mm. you know, your annual conference or you have your shareholder meeting or whatever venue you're performing this at. Mm-hmm. But how do you ever get you're not, how would you get millions of dollars of return out of people watching well, a musical about your like the new 1957 line of Chevys? I mean, I think it would have to be like abstracted in a certain way. Like I, when I okay, so in approaching this topic, I was expected to be. I was expecting to be completely like nauseated by this. <laughs> it's like, a really gross I am concept. Already, it, 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 from our current, like completely like alienated from the labor force kind of like mindset. I think it is gross. Like when I think of like any kind of like message that comes from like a corporate entity. Now I have a very like cynical kind of, uh, view towards it. I'm like, you know, mistrustful. I'm annoyed by ads. Yeah. A lot of the ads try to make me feel like I'm, you know, 
worthless without the product. They think that's really manipulative and, and bad. And, you know, obviously there's lots of implications about what corporations do that's really nefarious, depending on your point of view. But, you know, like when I, th- I, I and I hate musicals or like I hate a lot of musicals. Really? Even even though I love musicals at the same time. Yeah. Can, can uh, you clarify that for me? Because you, I, I thought yeah, you so, were like a, not like a musicals guy, but like well, you, I, you've written I, musicals, I have haven't few, you? I have written musicals, <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so I know how the sausage is made, as it were. Um, and I've worked on a lot of musicals that I, I just absolutely despise. And, and like, m- musicals are this weird... It, first of all, it should be said, they are an American art form. And I think we should keep that in mind when we think about, like, the particular form of American capitalism as it intersects with uh, the American musical theater art form and why this is such a perfect... It, production in, in that respect dude a chevy but, a chevy musical might be literally the most american thing exactly imaginable right. yeah but so so like musicals are this thing where you're like oh theater's cool there's great stories oh and then music is cool let's put them together and it's gonna be great right for for me a lot of musicals i think are annoying and uh kind of like it's just this so like fabricated like a lot of it is really fake i, I find a lot of it like um, uh, you know, repetitive and kind of the larger than life thing I think is kind of like annoying. But th- there are some musicals that I really love. I love like things like Little Shop of Horrors, like the campy stuff. I love like You're in Town, which is about like people having to pay to pee and then they start a revolution. You know, like weirdo <laughs> stuff like that. I love. Um, but you know, the current Broadway scene is very. It's just adaptations of Marvel movies and things like, uh, you know, Legally Blonde, the musical, and, yeah. um, you know, Harry Potter, the musical, like we mentioned. It's it's all just adaptations of really popular properties. And, like, that that kind of stuff, I think, is gross. I've always um, thought it made it, with some exceptions, like, I enjoy theater and I, like, obviously enjoy music. And when you put them together, it almost always makes both parts worse for me yes exactly (laughs) right it it is it is less than the sum of its parts somehow right yeah i mean the the thing that i like about good musicals that because musicals still do like make me cry i I mean i there are certain musicals that i absolutely adore um because there's something about like a character not being able to express what they want to express and just needing to explode into song which i think is like a really cool way of telling a story um, it's just the the problem is that most musicals are insufferable, and and most people <laughs> that, who are obsessed with musicals are also insufferable. Um, they do they but, do okay. suffer the the fan base problem for sure. They do. Uh, I mean, yeah, just the, the look at the Hamilton phenomenon, dude. Absolute sickos. That has come up a and few times on this show before, and I, I will completely has, derail us if we start talking about Hamilton. So got it. Yeah, because that show is an absolute disaster. Yes. Um, but okay. So to answer the question, though, like, where is this return on investment? So I think we have to, like, like, when, uh, I got, I got to mention, I'm sorry, but I got to mention. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll just be quiet and let you talk. (laughs) I think there there are certain people who see that show and, like, let's just ignore, like, a lot of the other implications about, like, the kind of music it is and who wrote it and stuff like that. A lot of people, when they watch that show, there's this sense of, like, oh man, America is this like scrappy project that was started by these like really cool hip people who were like fighting for a noble cause. And that makes me feel kind of like I'm part of this continuity, this like heroic 
scrappy underdog continuity that like I can now go out and feel hopeful because of that and like be involved in civic life in a way that is, um, you know, that makes me feel like heroic. And I think there's got to be a certain sense of those employees who watched their their life and their job be depicted as something glamorous and heroic and to be like uh, aspired to um, on this on the stage that must have made them like walk out of that room feeling heroic and feeling like what I do matters. What I, what I do is has been elevated above the menial, like material um, assembly of material into a product. And is now something that I can imbue with a kind of like emotional character, which I also think is something that we just don't really have, unless you do work in manufacturing in some way, we don't really have that kind of relationship to our, work anymore our, our generation does not for sure no and, he, uh, and i mean that's and maybe to the work definitely not to who we're working for no right yeah and i mean what one of the one of the big sort of issues with the you know what some some folks would call like the the alienation of labor or, or the the fetishization of the commodity is that we when we don't feel connected to commodities we don't really feel like the things that are made or that we buy are connected to people, which means when we enter the market to exchange money for commodities, we feel like just sort of strangers interacting as competitors. But I think when you do imbue your production with a connection to a person, uh, you feel like you're involved in a social unit. So if you have an entire market of people who, who feel emotionally connected to their work and proud of their products, then, you know, you might walk out of a Chevrolet dealership humming a little tune about the people who made it or, or humming a little tune about, about the thing itself and feel this kind of connection to it. And I imagine the increase in, like, lo- loyalty to the company and productivity productivity of the workers and salespeople, I imagine like widespread, you would notice an increase there. I don't know if it's $29 million right. increase. It's impossible to like quantify, but right. Yeah. But like how, how much does it cost to create a, or like what is the value of creating like a cohesive, emotional, social character of your company? Like, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I imagine that's, that's probably worth about that much. <laughs> I, I think it probably was more effective for some companies than others too. When you think about like high, high priced items, like a car where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a big purchase. It's a commitment for, you know, X amount of years. And especially then you had to deal directly with a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And so that salesperson who's going to sell, you know, a couple dozen cars every month or whatever, mm-hmm. feeling genuinely better about the product that they're selling and a more personal connection to it and believing what they're selling a little bit more, I'm yeah. sure does have some value in terms of how many actual cars are being sold. With right. something like Ragu or Hardee's <laughs> or like Miller, uh-huh. I'm I question that more of like, I don't really give a shit about pasta sauce. I'm going to buy the one that's either cheapest or tastes best. And like, no one's trying to sell me pasta sauce. Right. So like, where does that connection even 
get made between this internal production and the well, consumer. And that, like there's so many way, steps in between. In that way, I would imagine that's more about the social character of the workplace itself. Like the the employees of Ragu being told by somebody who felt uh, like it was valuable enough to produce something so expensive and so glamorous for them and to bring them together and have them like experience it together in this moment of like elation and joy. Like some of the people we should mention that, that this documentary that you sent me, um, I forget the name, ba- ba- the bathrooms are coming. The bathtubs are coming. Uh, it's called bathtubs over Broadway. Right. And I mean, we can talk more about that in a second, but the, the people in this documentary who perform these musicals, talked about how the employees as they as they interacted with them or as they applauded or as they left the theater would do so in this way that was like resembling like a religious revival experience like they really felt elated by you know but by viewing these things and i just imagine like that creating that kind of character for your employees that workplace character of like wow we you know being depicted in a in a heroic and glamorous way I think would probably just up the morale of your of your workplace to 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 such an extent that makes those things worth doing. It's probably also safe to assume that the that Ragu didn't have a budget of three million in the fifties. Like true, <laughs> they true. maybe weren't spending quite as much as Chevy and GM and McDonald's. But right, <laughs> uh, yeah. The the documentary you mentioned is called Bathtubs Over Broadway, um, produced by a guy named Steve Young, who think was if not solely like largely responsible for bringing these to the public awareness because Mm -hmm. because they were produced and performed internally there was no record of of them for the most part right like they they usually weren't recorded or broadcast um there weren't audio recordings of a lot of them Mm -hmm. and how this guy, Steve, who wrote a book about it and made this documentary that we watched, he got involved or found out about it. He was working on uh, the David Letterman show, and they had a, a segment where uh, it was called Dave's Record Collection. Mm-hmm. And they would, it was just a stupid, very Letterman esque bit where he would mm-hmm. pull this old, goofy record and they would listen to part of it and he would make jokes about it. Mm-hmm. And they were like intentionally funny records, but the idea was, you know, it's Dave's record collection. Mm-hmm. So Steve was a writer for Letterman and was responsible for picking these records and thought that these industrial musicals were unintentionally hilarious and were like great fodder for riffing on. Mm-hmm. And then just went super deep down this rabbit hole for like the next 10 years or whatever it was. Yeah, he became like... uh fascinated and like obsessed with with this whole like shadow industry of musicals yeah and so these these records he was finding were like souvenirs basically so they would make you know dodge makes this produces this musical it's performed at their shareholder annual shareholders meeting and then on your way out the door you get a gift basket that has or i guess not on on the way out but like a month later, you get a gift basket that has a copy of the performance on vinyl, right? And so there would be an extremely limited number of these produced, and most of them probably just got thrown away because 
Yeah. Why do you care? Not for commercial replication at all. This is all just, like you said, for internal distribution. Right. So some of them ended up in used record stores because, you know, they got donated or they got dropped off as a lot of records from somebody's whole collection or something like that. And some of them have made their way into, like, circulation. But there were hundreds, if not thousands of these, and most of them were not documented in any way. Mm-hmm. Let's take a real quick break to talk about BetterHelp, and then I want to play you some of this music. If there's something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, consider BetterHelp. They can set you up with a licensed professional therapist in as little as 24 hours, and they're super flexible in terms of how you meet. You can do video visits weekly. You can talk over the phone. You can text. They have iOS and Android apps. Um, so go to betterhelp.com slash what if today, and you'll get 10% off your first month of therapy. That's betterhelp.com slash what if. Before we go too much farther, I have some of the music if we want to awesome. take a... Do you have the bathroom one? <laughs> yeah, we should probably should probably start there with uh, The Bathrooms Are Coming was the name of the production. Um, 1969, produced by American Standard, the toilet and faucet makers. Written by Sid Siegel, who Sid alone wrote more than 250 industrial musicals. <laughs> which is just fucking bonkers. So here's uh, my bathroom. Wait, 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 wait. Before audience, dear audience, please, before you listen to this, purge yourself of any expectation about how ridiculous it may be to hear a song about uh, a commodity or, or a certain commercial product. Try, try to approach this as you would any other piece of music that is a song sung by a human about a, a sincere emotional connection and, 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 and purge yourself of your modern cynical uh, post-capitalist mindset. That's honestly really hard for me to do in this whole process of like, it is, it's so hard to detach me now from how I'm viewing all this stuff. But anyway, here's my the song. Right. Bathroom, my bathroom is a private kind of place very special kind of place the only place where i can stay making faces at my face it's my favorite my line oh <laughs> well, yeah Beautiful, by the way. Special room where I primp and fuss and groom, where I can get away from all and really feel in bloom. Mm. I'm free. Mm. I mean, a lot of the music yes. is good. Like it's it's obviously silly, or like it seems super silly now. And I think like there's got to be some amount of awareness at the time that like a song about your bathroom is a little bit silly. 
I don't think it's silly. I think it's fucking sincere and beautiful, dude. Okay. I challenge you, like, like, okay, like, how many times have you been in your, like, home somewhere and thought, like, damn, I like my bathroom. Like, when, when people think about, like, when people say, like, I love taking baths, I think it's relaxing. I don't think what they're saying is, like, necessarily just, like, I love being submerged in water. I think what they're saying is, like, <laughs> I like the fact that a bathtub exists and that I have access to one. Like, yeah. and they, they really are, like, expressing the same kind of sentiment of, like, dude, you know what rules? My bathroom. And, like, I think if you could really, like, connect to this in, in a way that's, like, it's, it's I mean, oh, man. So it's really tough for me because I had to, like, I came up to in conflict with myself while listening to this song during documentary. This one specifically? I like, yes. Okay. I was like, this is so silly. But then I thought like, okay, but wait, there are so many songs about like, like, isn't there like the, like my, in my room, in my bedroom or like in my car yeah. or like uh, somewhere half, that's green. Half the Beach Boys catalog. Right. There are so many sincere songs that are about this, but because they're like disconnected from a sense of like trying to, to like sell something we treat them as like sincere emotional sentiments i think part you know? of it for me too is like my own bias against just how i view this style of music mm. like i think i just automatically take it less seriously yeah so you do you think you think this song specifically was written like a hundred percent in earnest I think about, from my perspective as a composer, like if I was told, hey, there's a toilet company or a bathroom company and they want a song that's a ballad, it's like an emotional ballad about a woman who loves her bathroom. My first thought is like, do I love my bathroom? And the answer to that is like, hell yes. <laughs> so it's not hard for me to like, to connect to that idea of like, let me just jot down all the stuff I love about my bathroom. It's a safe place. It's like a, a private place where I kind of amp myself up in the morning. You know, it's like a place where I feel like I can get hell myself yeah. ready for stuff. It's a place where maybe I can have a little break. Hell yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> I can maybe have like a little breakdown if I need to. You know, it's like a different character from the rest of my home. It's really easy for me to approach the idea of writing an emotional song about my bathroom because I do love my bathroom, you know? Yeah, okay. So, I, I mean, it, I don't think it was necessarily received completely void of irony, but if I'm trying to put myself in the position of not only the composer, but the actor, I think, yes, I think as an actor, you have to approach this in earnest. I, yes. You know? And, and I, I think the, the performers, like you don't, you don't really have a choice, right? Right. There's a, so one of the, there were like some really big name actors who did these industrials at different times. Uh, one of them is Martin Short. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote, um, I wrote it down, but now I can't find it. But he said something about like, it was, it was good practice basically. And you developed a ton of skills because you just had to go out and do it. And I, he didn't directly say this, but to me, part of the subtext was like, you sort of remove in some ways the like, in quotes art part of it or like you kind of strip it down to like it's just a performance mm -hmm. and i have to go out there no matter how i feel about it and perform and sell it mm 
and I have yeah. to sing and I have to do whatever choreography there is and everything else. And I just right. got to go do it. Even if it's about my bathroom or my Osmobile right. or about how great Ragu is. Right. <laughs> right. And then I have to do it. A, I have to do it tomorrow and a bunch more times throughout the year. And right. they got paid super well to do it. I was looking mm-hmm. at the, um, the weekly pay in 1963. These industrials were paying actors more than Broadway. Mm-hmm. And they were getting on average $199 and 30 cents a week. In, 19, <laughs> in 1963, which would be $1,713 a week today. <laughs> so they're making like 80 grand a year if they're doing this full time, 80, 90 a grand gig. a year. That's pretty damn good money for somebody without a ton of experience in a lot of cases. Yeah. And then some of yeah. them, you know, went on to be Martin Short. <laughs> right. And, Florence Henderson, who was Carol Brady on the Brady Bunch, and Susan Stroman did a bunch of stuff, and she has five Tony Awards now. Like, mm-hmm. and back to your point about writing these and like how seriously were the composers taking it? Like, a lot of these were written by really legit composers and lyricists too. Yeah, like there's one. Um, uh, it was for Ford in 1959 written by Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach, who were responsible for Fiddler on the Roof later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, John Kander and Fred Ebb wrote a few industrials together who were then responsible for Chicago and Cabaret. Right. And they were paying, like, uh, part of it was, you know, if you're doing Broadway musicals, like, especially as a composer, how many can you do in a year? A couple, maybe yeah. one or two. I mean, if you're lucky, like, yeah. Right. I mean, like, if you're a composer, one maybe every five years, probably right. musicals, yeah. Or just one period. <laughs> if you're doing industrials, they're paying you, you the same out. or better, and you can you could write one as fast as you can write them. You could do one every month, right? And one dude did yep. 250 of them. <laughs> that's fucking nuts. Writing two. That that's is nuts. so much because they were. I mean, they weren't like full length. Usually, I think they were like an hour ish. It seems like they were more. If you're unfamiliar with the this, the form of musical theater, there's there's a musical called a book musical where you have like, you know, a libretto and a script, and there's a whole story. And in between the songs, you know, you might have recitatives if it's a totally all if it's an all music musical, you know, like more like operatic style where people sing the the the, the story and the dialogue, or you might have like full scenes where people are acting. Obviously, that's the kind of musical that we're used to as a, like a modern audience. But there, there was a very popular style back then called reviews, where it was basically just a bunch of songs that were like sort of loosely linked by a couple of lines of like unrelated dialogue that you would basically just sit. Th- and actually, my only experience with industrial musicals is as someone who worked on a couple of these like musical reviews for corporations. Like I did a couple for Target Wait, when I was younger. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I did a couple of these. They weren't like original musicals. They were musical reviews where we just replaced some some of the lyrics of other songs and made them about the company. Um, wow. Wait, so yeah, Target so was like, doing this? when it, Target was doing is this. Is this in yeah, your, so, your kid actor days? Yeah. So I think I was oh, in high school. So this would be like 2004, 2005. 
And um, I don't remember all the songs we did, but I do remember we did uh, a cover of Shout for like one of the C-suite dudes that was retiring. And we just replaced the word Shout with his name, which I, <laughs> I actually can't remember at this time because we made so many funny versions of it where we just replaced it with like Greg or like something. I think his name was Bart. And so we just said, like, you know the name to yell is Bart. Lift your hands up and Bart. <laughs> and and sense. we did. It doesn't make any sense. No. Lift your hands we up did and bun- Bart. <laughs> <laughs> Bart's a verb. He's a noun. He's anywhere. You can do anything. Um, we are all Bart today. Right. But we did, you know, probably like an hour of of cover songs. We had a full band. Uh, I mean, not a full orchestra, but we had a band and a, a bun- like a whole cast of kids that learned choreography. And so. I, need, I have several follow-up questions. You were performing sure. for who? This was like a conference room full of people in Target garb. So I'm assuming these... I, I don't Target know what employees, kind of employees of some sort. Were. Yeah, Target employees, yep. And this is at like a few like hundred. their headquarters downtown? Uh, yeah, and it's some kind of conference room. It must have been at the Target headquarters or the convention center. I can't remember which. But yeah, some big like conference room. And how did... How did you get connected with that as a high schooler? So I was in this organization called Youth Performance Company, shout out YPC, um, which, you know, has their own season. But also, yeah, we, like we did a couple of like if a if a local like politician wants to hire some people for like a campaign fundraiser, they'll Google like local performing people and they'll either hire kids from the Children's Theater or YPC. So we get some of the less like fancy gigs, you know, <laughs> you get, <laughs> get Bart's like, retirement party. The, yeah, we get Bart's retirement party. Um <laughs> But anyway, that's how I got connected through these. So they would they will just hit up YPC and say, "Hey, we want some performers to come and sing about Target." That concept is just um, so wild to me that like someone at Target was like, "You know what? We need some high schoolers to sing to Bart." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're gonna spend Target dollars on it, and then other people are like, "You know what? You're right. Let's do it." Yeah. Get on. Get well, on the, the horn. Other, get one of the here. other ones we did, I remember learning a line dance, and uh, we changed the lyrics to "I got friends in low places," but it was like wow. the lo- low places would be re- would be changed with like sporting goods or something like you know, or like different departments of Target. Oh my! Or be goodness. like, I got friends in home improvement <laughs> where the tools are, so you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and We're, dude, these people loved this. See, they, that's loved it they were screaming with laughter that's the other like, thing every time you mention like you could tell like oh we just mentioned sporting goods and like look at the whole sex sporting goods section over there is like ah! you know that's <laughs> us that's me dude they're singing about me because that's the thing that's what i'm kind of trying to communicate here is like dude when i go to see when i go to see like a story like pippin like never once in my life have i thought to myself wow i totally relate to the the like fail son of a like middle ages French aristocrat like that never felt connected to that story right. you know like I've never felt connected like cats you know <laughs> this is pure garbage escapism you know like I've never felt connected to that story but if somebody were to put on a musical about like you know my dumb job like who wouldn't want to go see that see you know? I don't think who I wouldn't w- want to go see a show where you're like depicted as this you're not just like a front desk employee who crunches numbers. You're a heroic front desk employee who's doing a vital service for your community. I think I would you know? hate it, honestly. I think I would really? have a really negative reaction to that. Yeah. It just yeah. feels well, so like it's just pandering. Mm. You know, like I'm going to try and 
do this like really obvious thing to try and make you feel good and important and like respected and necessary mm-hmm. so that you can go out and make me more money. Okay, yes. I think that's true. And I think again that is the that is the reason that these things don't really exist anymore. Right. It's because and, nobody really feels that way about their job anymore. Right. But I wonder like why? Why don't we? And I think Yeah, and I think part of the reason is like because this kind of culture where the hope of America is necessarily connected to what we make and what and that is what we do. Like the idea of the American future, you know, the land of tomorrow and like the, you know, all these, the world's fair type thing and like the space race and, you know, all this progress with the land of progress and these product revolutions and the world is driving our cars and buying our stuff. And like, what do you do? Well, I sell that stuff or I make that stuff. I'm part of what like, like makes America, America, like this whole like post-World War II hope, a lot of which, I mean, yes, we are ignoring a lot of really terrible things that also happened post-war and just permanently in this culture as well. But I think like, you know, that kind of hope connected to production. uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's why these are so strange to us in hindsight. But I, I totally get that connection to like wanting to, to, to imbue what you're doing with this kind of like emotional character that it means something, you know, it's not just to make money, you know? Yeah. And I think there's, there's definitely a reason that these took off right after world war two. Right. Um, and I think now like we just, we've seen, I don't know if we just weren't as aware of it before or if how much there's actually been a shift in terms of like, how corporations treat people too. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen all the harm that big corporations do all the time, both to our country and to the world. Yeah. And like, is anybody, even the people at Amazon, like they probably, some people probably at least know that like Amazon is bad, <laughs> right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazon is a well, net and- negative for the world. Right. And if I think about like, what do I want to change from that? Or like, how would I want that to be different? I would want more people who are actually doing the work to have more agency over their experience at that job to like, right. To like, to put the workers more in control of their, you know, to have more autonomy over their day-to-day experience, to have more decisions made about what, what happened with the profits, what their working conditions were. And I think if we did that, it would lead to a culture where you could sit in a conference room full of people and laugh and cheer at a depiction of your workplace, you know, like, well, right. I think and I, in my, I think that's why this stuff worked at the time is because at the time, right. if you worked for Ford, you actually had, you know, some autonomy and you were making a livable wage and you were producing a necessary thing that was well-made and lasted a long time. And people genuinely, you know, found value in now, right. Which is interesting now when you think about like, like, you know, okay, we used to make stuff. We used to like have stuff. Now there's just, now it's just bubbles of credit floating people further into debt. And the only thing we really produce is like currency that we export. And then we import commodities from everywhere. Like labor has been completely kicked uh, out of the decision-making process. And now we basically just float people with credit, produce global exchange currency. And, uh, and that's it. 
And but what we do still have as as far as like a job sector is like the service economy. And if you look at like service, finance, and you know, uh, like people like Target, Walmart, people who like sell commodities to the people who are accruing debt with these bubbles of credit. And like the, when you look at the kind of these industrial musicals that are still being made, it is things like Walmart and Target, places that where people do sort of feel like they are still contributing to the American commerce. Uh, sector, which is things like selling products at Walmart or, you know, I guess financiers. <laughs> I don't know if there's any financiers musicals, but we should, we should probably note that Walmart produced a Walmart musical in 2006, mm-hmm. which I, as far as I could find is the most recent example of this industrial musical thing. Theirs was mm-hmm. like, I found some clips and it seems like it was a little more self-aware and like intentionally comedic sure but it was definitely a musical produced by walmart for like this same purpose of boosting morale and invigorating their employees right yeah because i mean that it's almost a shame to me that these that these were kept so seek like out of the public reach because i do think you know broadway musicals like during World War II and and before and like slightly afterwards, a lot of them were about like what America was and what America was doing. You know, like Oklahoma was about settling out west and and uh, you know South Pacific was about like people during the war. It was about like Americans doing things that America was doing. And then like afterwards and like approaching Vietnam, the whole like realm of Broadway became completely about escapism. People didn't want to think about what they were doing. People wanted to think about being somewhere else. Things like Cats, things like Phantom of the Opera, things like Wicked, things like Pippin. I think we see that um, in entertainment in general. Right. Sure. Yeah. People don't... Anything that is about the real world is about like like a totally like eviscerated post-apocalyptic wasteland where people are eating grasshoppers and the sky is choked with black smut. Which you know? is then no longer, you know, about the real world. It's just negative escapism. <laughs> Right. It's pessimistic yes. yeah. escapism. But, there, but there's no sense of hope. There's no like sense of, you know, uh grandiose, you know, yeah. whatever. But but I think like if we if we could be really honest about like, well, what is the character of America? Like what are Americans doing on their in their day to day? It's like, well, they are working. They're like producing things. You know, and I and I think like that like I again, like I don't know if I want to see another musical about like Spider Man, you know. Yeah. Like, I think I'd rather see a musical about what I'm doing. And a lot of what people are doing is working. And now so much of the, like, more, I guess, creative or, like, escapist entertainment, it's just reruns, basically. You know, like... Which, again, is, like, is it really that ridiculous to think about a musical about a toaster when all the Broadway musicals are basically about products anyway? Brave Little Toaster banged. You ever see that movie? Hell yeah, that's true. (laughs) That movie was dark. Yes. Yikes. That was about the human condition. But like, yeah, Spider-Man the musical, let's not kid ourselves. This is about a product, not a story. Right. Spider-Man is a product. Harry Potter the musical, this is about a product. Right. These are properties, you know? And we're, yeah, the, the consumer or the, yeah, the consumer is just being marketed at instead of like this internal marketing that this that these industrial musicals were. Right. Which I almost well, and I and I I was I was thinking last night about that too, and I this is gonna maybe alienate some people from <laughs> from when I say this because I don't think a lot of people think this way, 
But when I think about like, would I rather go see like, okay, I have a Subaru Forester. I like my Subaru Forester. Would I rather go see a musical about Green Day's American Idiot, which is a Broadway musical, yeah. or Subaru Foresters? I'm pulling for the Subaru <laughs> Forester musical. I'm going to go see it. And I'm going to be more interested in seeing that and, be, and it being about the people who made it and who designed it. Dude, Miyazaki has a whole movie about the guy that uh, designed the Japanese Zero. And it's like a beautiful film about like designing, dreaming, hoping, building, and producing something. So you're saying like, th- that's a little bit different, though, because you're saying now like you want to see like a Subaru documentary musical. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but I guess, it, you know, it could be made about the people who produced it and... Well, that's what I'm saying, about... though. Like, that's still a shift because these were, these were just like fucking pep rallies for for Ford and Ragu and not Subaru, but true. The the Subaru version would be like rolling. Like, dude, I, there are clips in that documentary of a lot of these uh, musicals, and there's a Ford one where like people are dancing and then just someone drives a fucking F-150 into the middle of the stage. Hell yeah, dude. That rules. That rules. <laughs> because it's... No, but you're right. Because they, they were internal. But I think that's something about like knowing that these composers who wrote like hundreds of these things are like sitting on them and no one's ever going to hear them. The thing that I think is really sad about that is like, I don't think that these would have only been like good for the employees. Like, I feel like you could shift these to a certain extent where you are like building a social character of labor that is like empowering and hope and hopeful. And like, we we don't have anything like that, you know, uh, not really anyway. Um, but I think, I, I think people would like to see things like that. It brings up an interesting point of like, what, what part drove what, like, did these work because there was an environment in which people already felt a connection to their work and to the products and they were more receptive to this type of uh, production because they mm-hmm. already were on board? Yeah. Or did the production push them? Grease the wheels a little bit? Yeah, towards, you know reevaluating how they felt about the company or feeling better about the company and their work and their product and their coworkers. Because I yeah. I think, I think in most workplaces now, if you were to do this, a lot of people would, and again, this is my bias probably, but I, I don't think people have that same connection. No, absolutely not. And, I mean, I, and therefore speaking, would not be receptive to something like this because it's just not going to, it's just not going to hit. They're not going to be receptive to like your, your employer feels so separate. Your workplace is just a, for for a lot of people like a thing, you know, especially for people that now work in very corporate settings. I don't think a lot of people who work in those corporate settings feel like a strong personal connection to that corporation. No, I mean, we've been completely separated from, from any kind of like meaning associated with our with our workplaces for sure. And why why is that though? Well, I mean, I think that so the the answer to the first question about like d- which reinforces which, I think it's definitely like the production system of production is the thing that generates the kind of like I'm getting like kind of Marxist here. <laughs> but it's like the thing that generates the the superstructure, right? The cultural thing. And this the cultural thing, the superstructure is not generative. 
So it doesn't generate any any um, of the base, any of the the like material conditions. Damn it, I'm just using capital terms now. <laughs> but but um, but it doesn't work really the other way around. It does influence the base, but it doesn't generate it, right? So I think as we as the base changes, as the system of production changes, that's when the culture around it changes. And as we move into deindustrialization, as we move from the Great Compression into the the declining rate of profit and the liberalization of global trade, the, uh, the automation, you know, the creation of the Rust Belt, the shipping all the jobs overseas, and you, then you don't really have uh, a manufacturing sector in the same way as you did in America anymore. And so jobs in America just exist to um, to kind of facilitate the selling of commodities that are made in other countries, which, I mean, who, yeah, what, where is the pride in that? I mean, what, right. how, how could you feel a sort of connection to that? The amount of income inequality has created these jobs that are, yeah, the absolutely menial um, sort of busy work. Even the people who do work in production these days are mostly just, you know, as, assembling one, one piece of one thing. There's no sense of like you're working towards a whole with other people. Um, you mostly are just kind of these individual strangers who are competing with each other, um, which, yeah, it, it's not a it's not a particularly hopeful or, or um, you know, em, emotionally healthy environment. It's a sort of pathological environment. Um, so and I think that that kind of production has generated a a, a a culture where we don't feel connected or emotionally invested in our in our work. Um so yeah, I, I I agree with you that I don't think these kinds of musicals would work. I think if there were musicals that would that people would like about their jobs, it would be about how utterly terrible their jobs are. <laughs> I think people would love musicals like that. I'm um, I'm looking at this list of you know, Shell, Buick, Ford, Dodge, RCA, Oldsmobile, uh, Johnson and Johnson, Sitco, Diesel Dazzle was one of my one of my favorites. <laughs> Most uh-huh. of them are manufacturing. Yeah. But there are, like there are a couple of exceptions of like there's one called My Insurance Man. Right. Yeah. Which just seems like a sort of an anomaly in this whole list. Mm-hmm. Both in I mean, I guess you insurance is a product or like a co- a commodity sort of, and like there's still the sales component and it was clearly intended for insurance salespeople specifically. Right. Like, I don't think you're, you're, you know, riling up the underwriters to go out there and <laughs> right. write more. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I wonder if it is maybe just as simple as we don't do a whole lot of manufacturing anymore. And this was really like I mean, specifically targeted to manufacturing and sales of American made products. I mean, I, th- I think that's it because I mean, these are the people, uh, a, who had enough money to spend on this stuff. It, that's the first essential part of that component, but also you gotta have a couple million to blow on a musical. <laughs> well, and you have to have a workforce that actually benefits from being like inspired to work together. Right. And manufacturing and sales. Fine, the f- right. And finance sectors, that doesn't really matter. Or like, you know, service, whatever. I mean, that you need people who are going to like uh, stand next to each other in on the production line and feel like cooperating, you know, and right. feel like working together to, to make something. Well, and and an um, industry where that cooperation is going to become profit. Right. 
And it's a great way of, I mean, if you make your employees feel like they're, they're like enjoying what they're doing and, you know, that they're valued, it's a really good way of avoiding things like strikes and labor actions too. Right. Um, you know, if you're not nice to your giant workforce, they will stop your profit. Like they, they, right. they have a lot of power in that respect. You know, it just seems like, a, I don't know that I keep coming back to the, like, how was this? How effective was this? And it, it must have been, right? Because there were thousands of them made over three decades. Right. But Well, this is, and this is the, the tragedy of it too. I mean, there's, in these videos that were being shown in this documentary, Bathrooms Are Coming, um, which if you notice is a play on words of Paul Revere, well, who ba- famously said, Bathrooms the are, coming are Coming was the name of one of the musicals. Right. Yeah, okay. Yep. The documentary is bathtubs over broadway all right bathrooms over broadway yes right but it should be noted the bathrooms are coming is a reference to a revolution which i think in context of like our modern broadway scene in hamilton and the revolution versus a bathroom product being a revolution is i think just another thing that illustrates kind of what we're talking about here that like the idea of like a product being a revolution is not something that we really take seriously anymore, but like it totally was back then. Like plastic, this was a revolutionary thing, you know? Yeah. Like polymers, like these things are revolutionary and they represent like this, the space age and, you know, the future and uh, it changes everybody's conditions. It'll change your wage. It'll change the competitor's prices. It, it is a revolution. Anyway, that's a total tangent. But um, uh uh, yeah, I think like seeing these videos of like Flint, Michigan during that yeah. time where it was like this bustling company town, uh, you know, where the streets are shiny and there's these new buildings being built everywhere and cars are rolling off the line at light speed. And uh, these people are putting on these huge glamorous shows. And then now, you yeah. know, and like there was a precipitous decline in these musicals around the same time as when when the Rust Belt was kind of forming. And that's, I think, the the sad thing about thinking about these composers and these actors who worked in these musicals is, like, you know, their industry died at the same time. And nobody ever really found out about this, you know? And ironic that this guy, Steve Young, should discover it when his job was ending. Um, yeah. You know, that he kind of was losing his way of life and, and a thing that he was doing for 20 years ends as he kind of, like, begins to elevate this other sector of entertainment that also met its end, you know, abruptly and, and, un, and unpleasantly. Uh, I think it's really interesting. So when are you writing an airline musical? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, can see it kind of working. I'm working on it. Yeah. I mean, I've had to write things for, I, I mean, I won't name drop anything, but I've had to write some things for like things that I don't particularly, you know, would never think about writing about. Uh, well, screw it. I will say it. so. Th- there was this car show that I did that I wrote music for, and it was for this guy who just really likes cars. And he was he like has a bunch of friends that are car collectors, and he wanted to make a show about cars. And Dude, how are you out. bringing this up an hour in? Oh, I don't, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> the fuck? this is just, it's coming to me. I don't know. I'm dancing as fast as I can here. Uh, the, but he he really likes cars. He had a bunch of car collector friends, and he rented out a room at the River Center in uh, St. Paul. And he brought all these like million dollar cars in that were some of them were hot rods, some of them were, like the the uh, DeLorean from Back to the Future, you know, the Batmobile stuff like that. 
And he had this idea where he's like, I just like cars, make a show about it. So he had people writing just for, scripts. Just for him and his friends? No, this was a public performance. This oh. was like a, this was part of their main stage season. Um, okay. And this is for the Mixed Blood Theater. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, and so he set up this thing where it was like, people would take golf carts through these little scenes that were set up and written around cars that were arranged in like thematic, you know, uh, elements like, uh, this is all the, the low riders in this scene. And then this is all the electric cars. This is all the autonomous cars over here. And there was like a loose story about like climate change and like self-driving cars and automation and jobs. And, but you know, sure. basically it was just like, come look at all these cool cars that we, uh, assemble. And, also music. and at first it was like, and also music, <laughs> right. And at first it was like, all right, whatever. I'm just writing music for this guy that likes cars. But by the end of it, I was like, no, I'm writing music about this guy's dream. That's like the cars re- resemble this idea of like progress and like moving forward into the future and like electric cars and autonomous cars represent like the idea of tackling climate change and the idea of like moving forward, you know? And I don't know. I think you can really squeeze a lot of like emotion out of something that at first at face seems very mundane. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it would be more of a challenge now, but like in yeah. the 50s and 60s, for sure. I mean, I, this shit was obviously extremely effective or they wouldn't have done yeah. it and spent so much money on it. True. For 30 yep. some years. <laughs> right. Well, and look at what the like the emotional heart of like some Broadway musicals are now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's the other thing is like the music itself is comparable to the music you would hear on Broadway. Because it's literally the right. same people in a lot of cases. They're just writing right. about... Well, and that's the other thing. Because I, I might be totally wrong about, like, the emotional character of, like, labor and production. And you, this, you could just make the argument that, like, music can make anything meaningful. I mean, that, that is the power of music. You don't... You can have a grocery list and sing about it, and suddenly it's, like, a really meaningful song that you can extrapolate all sorts of meaning from. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is the manipulative character of musicals also, is that it's... It's taking something that maybe people wouldn't normally feel very strongly about, like the the fail son of a French king in the Middle Ages, and making it something, you know, that everyone can feel connected to. Yeah. All right. Power of music. I'm going to take us out with Golden Harvest from the 1959 Ford Tractor Show, Fortify Your Sweet. Future. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. We, we can let that play underneath. Uh, anything you want to leave folks with? Anything you... Um, any any thoughts on America? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, hey, if we're going to if we're gonna make a, a place where people do feel uh, more connected to, um, you know, the project of whatever we're all doing here, it's going to take uh, some kind of emotional connection to, uh, to a project. And um, so we should all just remember our, our obligations to each other. Oh, yeah. And uh, whether that's in the workplace or out of it, um, we are obligated to each other as people. So, uh, yeah, let's keep showing up for each other. And, um, yeah, love you. And thanks for tuning in. Love you too, buddy. Good hanging. Golden harvest with select Turn your tractors and implements to a bumper crop of dollars and cents. Turn your tractors and implements to a bumper crop 
of dollars and cents. Gonna be a golden harvest in 1959. Gonna be a lot more buyers to sign the